And God, in this moment and in this place, God, we ask that you would you would make that truth just rooted deep inside each of us. That we are who you say we are, that we have been set free from sin. God, and that there is a place for you, a place for each of us in your kingdom. So God, I pray that that reality and that truth would just sink deep within each of our beings this morning. God, help us to understand and know you in a deeper way today. For each person here this morning, God, reveal just a little bit more of yourself today. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. I feel like what they need to do is have like a, a, Zoom, a Zoom webinar on how to undo a mask with a microphone on. <laughs> I hope you're all doing well this morning. If you are new or visiting... There we go. Thank you. <laughs> if, you if you are new or visiting, uh, my name is Aaron. I have the joy of getting to be a part of the team here at Wellspring. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us this morning. If you're a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, there's some amazing folks over to my left over here in the back that would love to hang out with you. So feel free to make your way over uh, that direction. And for the rest of us, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6 this morning. And for those of you who have been with us for some time now, you know that we've been journeying through the Old Testament for pretty much all of this year, and we're going to continue on doing that through, you know, more than likely the end of this year and into uh, 2022, actually. We've been right in the middle of the book of Exodus, and Kind of a funny thing-ish, when we were planning out the teaching schedule, I had forgotten to actually insert a teaching for this Sunday because there's an extra Sunday here in the month. And so, lo and behold, when we kind of were thinking about, oh, hey, what are we going to talk about, you know, at the end of May, there's actually a fifth Sunday there, we decided that we're going to talk about sin. So, welcome to church. <laughs> so this morning, we're actually going to be looking at the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6 in particular. And looking at how Paul talks about sin in light of the story of the Exodus. So this is kind of very important here. Because we've been journeying through the Old Testament. And one thing that you'll notice as we go through the book of Romans here, or just this morning, is that Paul is echoing and referencing language like enslavement and freedom sort of language that all goes back to the story of Exodus. Now, before we actually get into the text, I want to invite you, if you can, to stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading from Romans chapter 6. And if you can, either just have your Bibles in front of you, starting in verse 5, or just kind of listen to the words, the word of God uh, this morning. So Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Paul writes, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I'll jump down to verse 11. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become servants of righteousness. This is God's word. God, this morning we ask that you would help us to understand you and your word in a deeper way. I pray for comfort, clarity, conviction this morning that your spirit would work amongst us. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning as we talk about sin, I want to do it in a kind of a different way. And I want to talk to you about a dartboard, my coffee addiction, and a bridge out in London. Now, you might be wondering, what do those sort of three things have to do with the concept of sin? And like I was mentioning at the beginning, this idea of sin and how Paul talks about it in particular in Romans 6 has a lot of echoes back to the Exodus story. And in fact, as you come to the New Testament, as you hear the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the apostles in the New Testament, you'll constantly be noticing that they're always kind of going back to the story of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus is sort of the New Testament writer's foundation story. Whether it's, you know, Jesus' baptism or Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, or Jesus at the Last Supper, or Paul telling the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 that the church in Corinth is like Israel wandering in the wilderness. The New Testament writers are constantly looking back to the Exodus. And as we talk about sin in particular this morning, the language that Paul will use is very reminiscent of that of the book of Exodus. Paul will talk about how Followers of Jesus have been set free, not from the tyrant Pharaoh or any sort of political ruler, but from the tyrant of sin itself. And that we have been brought into freedom, freedom in Christ. Now, when we hear that word sin, it's a short three-letter word. And I don't know about you, depending on your background or church experience, that word sin might kind of raise up some feelings of, I don't know, why are we going to talk about it? Maybe feelings of sort of shame and identity. Maybe your experience with that word sin has not been coupled with the grace and forgiveness of God and has been used in such a way to create harm and feelings of insecurity and just not really transformative power. But I hope this morning as we look at the book of Romans and talk about sin that we kind of come at it with a little bit of nuance. That we come at it and and come with with this humility and approaching the scriptures, seeing what do the scriptures have to say about this concept of sin and the goodness and the grace of God in spite of our sin. Now, one of the images that comes to mind when I think about the word sin, and, and the scripture I think goes along with this, is that sin often is what I call kind of the dartboard version of sin. I have a picture of a dartboard here. How many of you have ever played darts before? Right? I'm terrible. Right? 
I might as well just like throw it with my left hand. I'm right-handed, and I would still have a better shot of trying to hit the dart. It's a ton of fun. You see these guys on ESPN or something, and they're like just winging it, and they just hit this little minuscule little dart in the middle or the center target there. And sometimes when we think about sin, we kind of think of it in this sort of framework of like missing the mark. Sin being this idea of there is this mark, there's this goal, there's this target, that target being God's holy, righteous, perfect standard, and we as human beings have fallen short of that mark. We miss the mark. And so kind of like, you know, Alexander Hamilton, we try really, really hard to not miss our shot. And we try really, really hard to like attain that, that good, perfect moral standard, but we recognize that we fail. We recognize that we fall short of God's standard. Now, to be just 100% clear, this sort of metaphor or idea of sin being something that we miss the mark of is entirely biblical. It's one of the many ways the scriptures talk about this concept of sin, of like missing the mark. In particular, this word for sin that you know, can also be translated as exactly that, missing the mark, is used in this way in the book of Judges. In Judges 20, verse 16, the writer says this, Among all those were 700 men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hare, meaning a rabbit, and not miss. Right? So that word for not miss is the same word that often gets translated as sin throughout the rest of the scriptures. And so it's this idea of someone kind of having a slingshot or a bow and arrow, trying to aim at a target, and when they miss that target, they miss the mark or sin. Does that sort of make sense there? That sort of basic frame. Now, the thing about this way of talking about sin is that it's, a, and I don't mean this in a bad way at all, it's sort of a very individualistic way of talking about sin. My personal choices, I have missed the mark, right? And not to downplay the importance of morality or ethical standards, those things matter 110%, especially in our cultural moment of sort of you do you and ethical relativism. Ethical relativism. It matters. Our moral and ethical choices and the fact that we fall short of God's holy, good standard, it matters. That's important to talk about. But one thing I just want to mention is that this is not the only way the scriptures talk about sin. One biblical scholar I really like, Nijay Gupta, he sort of has this frame of different ways that the scriptures talk about sin, different metaphors, if you will. That throughout scriptures, sin is often talked about as a burden, sort of like a weight, like a, a really heavy sort of backpack or load that one cannot care. That it is a burden to bear. This is kind of what I think Jesus is referencing in Matthew 11. Come to me all who are heavy and, and with heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Another metaphor that the scriptures use is sin of being like a debt. Sort of economic or sort of financial metaphors. That there is something we cannot pay, something we owe but we cannot you know, have the resources to actually pay back. Kind of this debt sort of language. Another metaphor is this concept of sort of walking away. This is kind of along the lines of just rebellion. Going this direction and just turning around and going the opposite of what God wants. And then lastly, there's this concept of sin being that of like a stain. This is kind of like the, the purity sort of language. Where sin kind of creates this impurity 
and this stain upon ourselves and our world. Now, all of these sort of concepts here, I'm not going to have time to go into every single one of them. We probably will do like a cutting room floor on each of these this, or on these the, the, this coming week. All I'm, the point I'm trying to make here is that the Bible has a variety of different ways of talking about sin. Whether it's missing the mark, a burden, or a debt, there is a variety of metaphors that the scriptures use to talk about this concept of sin. But here's the thing. What does this have to do with Romans 6 and Paul's sort of echoing back to the book of Exodus? Well, when we look at these sort of metaphors, and we sort of kind of, and as scripture does, bring all of these metaphors together, and when all of these metaphors sort of conglomerate and are sort of centralized into this one sort of concept, the scriptures talk about sin in this sort of kind of beastly picture, if you will. And there's a picture of a beast right there. I won't become an artist or anything. But the point here is that when all of these sort of uh, ideas and metaphors of sin come together, the picture that sin, that the scriptures use to talk about sin, is sort of like this personified sort of beastly sort of language. Meaning this, that when you go read through the book of Romans in particular, Paul talks about sin in sort of like this personified manner. That sin does things. That there's actions attached to sin. That sin enslaves Sin snares, sin deceives, like there's verbs attached to this concept of sin. Like there's, there's the, like it's animated, if you will. That's where the beastly sort of image comes out. Kind of like that beast in Stranger Things or something. Like it's just this not fun image to think about. And when Paul, when we come to Romans 6, he says this and how, how he describes it. Look at me with verse 5 starting in Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that, pay attention to this language here, the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, notice that language again of the, quote, body of sin. What does Paul mean by that? The body of sin. Now think about it like this. You know, we have this concept of the body of Christ, right? Not like the incarnation, that's true, but the body of Christ. We're individuals with their giftings and their talents and how God has made them. Individuals contribute to the body of Christ. And in a similar way, Paul is saying, individuals, unfortunately, contribute to his language, the body of sin. Meaning this. That sin is not just an individual thing. Sin is not just my individual choices just focusing on me. But as our individual choices, yes, are important, yes, do matter, our individual choices, unfortunately, contribute to what Paul describes as this, quote, body of sin. This sort of larger, more communal, more corporate, more sort of systematized way of thinking about sin. And this is perhaps a little bit different than maybe we in the West often sort of think. In the West, we sort of have this maybe more individualistic sort of way of thinking about sin, which isn't always bad. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But I just want to remind us of how the scriptures also talk about sin in communal sort of ways. Think about this, other places in scripture where the scriptures talk about it like this. In the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9, 
Daniel is in exile in Babylon, and he's praying for the forgiveness of not just his own individual sins, but the sins of the entire community in Daniel 9. Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah, the same thing. He's not praying in Nehemiah 9. This is easy to remember too. Daniel 9 and Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah is not just praying for his own individual sins, but the sins and the forgiveness of his ancestors' sins. That sin is not just an individual thing. It is a communal, corporate thing. You come to the New Testament. When Jesus teaches his followers to pray, we call it the Lord's Prayer. It's not written with eyes and knees, individual language. Jesus says, forgive us our debts. Forgive us communally our trespasses. The point I'm trying to make here is very simple. It's both individual and corporate. And this reminded me of this, this bridge over in London. I think we have a picture of it. This concept where there was this bridge built in 2000. It's called the London Millennium Bridge. Built in 2000, it was a pedestrian footbridge. And when the bridge first opened, it was extremely wobbly. To the point where, as individual people, and I think I have a little video where we can see this. There's no sound. But as individual people are walking on this bridge, the individual vibrations are causing the bridge to sway back and forth. Now, how would you like that? No, right? And the point that engineers soon found out was that it was the individual foot vibrations that were affecting everyone else on the bridge to the point where you're walking across this beautiful bridge in the middle of London, and it's dangerous. And it's not fun. But here's the thing. Individual people walking on that bridge were affecting the experiences and the lives of other people on that same bridge. And I think we sort of get this, right? That our own individual choices do not just get self-contained in our own sort of lives. That they have an effect on other people. And you sort of multiply that out over years and over decades and over generations, it sort of has this unfortunate corrosive effect. Like a tug on a spider web that doesn't just affect one end of the spider web, but the other end of a spider web. Or a rock thrown into a pond that ripples out. Or one domino falling that knocks all the other dominoes down. Sin has this accumulative effect in society. And this is something that I think is really important and really key. I think personally... We can kind of see this, I can see this in my own life. That the way that I act, and the words that I say, and the mood that I am, kind of sets a tone for my own home. That the way that I behave and talk to my kids affects how my kids eventually start talking to me. I've been really convicted about this in my own life. The way that I sometimes see my kids talking is often reflective of the not-so-good ways that I have been talking. Where my own choices do have an effect on other people. And you just keep multiplying that out, and this is where it's important to recognize that sin, yes, is individual. It, the end, I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But there is a communal, corporate, systemic sort of aspect to sin as well. But notice, back to that passage in Romans, Paul, we talked about the body of sin, this communal sort of aspect. But Paul also talks about, in that, in that line there, being enslaved to sin. 
Now, what, is, what does Paul mean by being enslaved to sin? Well, very simply, it's this concept that not only are our choices affecting other people and other things in society, but our choices also have this inverse effect and they affect us as well. That our actions have a transforming effect on our own selves. Meaning this, that my own habits, my own actions have a transforming power on my own life. Let me give you an example. This is about my sort of coffee addiction. Believe it or not, growing up, I grew up in Washington, Washington State. Long time ago, or I don't know if long time ago, but in college, I had a summer job where I actually did construction. I helped build homes, believe it or not. And so my good friend Wes had this construction company, and he was the first one to really get me hooked on coffee. This is a picture of a coffee shop, uh, my favorite coffee shop, Woods Coffee, up in Linden, my hometown. Small little Dutch town, that's why they, there's the windmill there. Woods Coffee. If you ever get a chance to go up to Washington, my favorite spot on the planet for coffee. But here's the thing. When I started drinking coffee, I didn't start drinking coffee. I drank like chocolate syrup with whipped cream with a little bit of milk and like a little bit of coffee. Some of you call that a mocha. <laughs> but over time, the mocha turns into a latte. The latte turns into like coffee with cream. And then now, it's just straight up black coffee. Nothing added, right? And like not like that kind of Folgers stuff. No offense to my good friend over here who loves Folgers. But like really good black coffee, right? Like that's what we're talking about. And so there's this, there's, there's, there's nothing natural about me liking coffee, right? I didn't like come out born wanting coffee. But my own individual choices have had this sort of reversed impact on me. Where now I am the kind of person that cannot function without coffee because of my own choices. Now, it's a silly example and all analogies break down, but I think you get the point. That our own sort of individual choices over time have an accumulative effect not only on other people, but also ourselves. And they shape the kinds of people we become. They shape the kinds of, the, the character formation of our own selves, of our own sort of lives. And this is what Paul is talking about when he says that we have been enslaved to sin. That sin sort of has this power now over us, apart from Jesus. We'll get to Jesus in a second. But apart from Jesus, sin has this sort of dominion or power over our lives. That we essentially feed the beast, if you will, by our own actions. Now, what can be done about this? This predicament where, yes, we've missed the mark. There's all these sort of metaphors. There's this communal aspect of sin. There's this enslavement sort of addictive type process or aspect of sin as well. What can be done about this? And this is where Paul gets to Jesus. This is where Paul says in Romans 6, starting in verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. What's Paul getting at here? Well, Paul's talking about, yes, that, there is, that, Paul, that Jesus has addressed the root of the problem, sin itself, the source of it, and Jesus has addressed the fruit of the problem, sin leading to death. That the whole gamut of sin, Jesus has defeated. And that because of Jesus, Paul is saying, we have been set free from the bondage and the decay that sin brings into our lives. He goes on. Death no longer has dominion over him, being Jesus. For the death he, Jesus, died, he died to sin. 
once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. What Paul is doing here is he's elevating Jesus here to the point saying what Jesus has done in defeating sin and death has paved the way, has opened this door for new life, new possibility for those who trust in him. And this is key because apart from Christ, we are, the scriptures say, dead in our trespasses in sin, Ephesians 2. And the question then becomes, what is our response to all of this? How are we to respond to what Paul is saying here in Romans 6? And I love what Paul says in verse 11. He gets really practical here. He says to the church in Rome, So you, church, also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Okay, so there's a very practical thing that we are to do. Consider yourself dead to sin. And that word consider there in yellow is the word logizomai in Greek. You can kind of see where we might get the word logic from. It's this mental sort of uh, accounting sort of word. That we must mentally make the, the calculation. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Jesus. That look at the evidence, look at what Jesus has done, and make a determination in your mind that you have been, you are dead to sin and alive to Jesus. That there is a mental transformation that is to take place. That what is true reality, what is real in your life is not that sin has power over you if you're a follower of Jesus. But what is real in your life as a follower of Jesus is that Jesus has set you free. And has given you his spirit so that you might walk, as the scriptures say, in newness of life. We must consider ourselves dead to sin, not just as an opinion, but as a reality and a statement of fact. But Paul does not stop there. He does not just leave it as a mental exercise. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Do not present yourselves as to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But, here's the key, present yourselves to God. So not only, verse 11, does Paul say, make the mental calculation, consider yourself dead to sin. But Paul, verse 12, says there's something we are to do with our bodies, with our lives. To not present ourselves to sin over here, but with our actions, with our lives, present ourselves to God. What's he getting at here? Our response is not just something, oh yeah, I agree in my head with the gospel. It's no, my life is being transformed by the gospel. I am presenting myself now to the person of Jesus. He has rescued me. He has saved me. And I am presenting my whole life. Paul will say in Romans 12, I beseech you, brethren, to quote the King James, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies collectively as a living sacrifice, which is, Paul says, your true and proper act of worship. That this is to be our response, that our whole lives now are given over to the person of Jesus. Paul then goes on in verse 22, you have been set free from sin and now are servants or slaves to God. Again, Paul wants to remind them that you, no longer are, you are no longer under the master of sin. Just like the Israelites in Egypt were under the master Pharaoh, 
God set Israel free, not to just do whatever they want. This is important. God did not set Israel free to just go have fun in the promised land, do whatever they want to do. No, no, no. They have been set free from Pharaoh to now then serve and worship the living God who saved them. That they would come to know him and love him and treasure him and cherish what God says. To be good and true and fruitful for their lives. And in the same way, Paul says to the church in Rome and by extension to us, you have been set free from sin and not free to just do whatever you want. In a you-do-you culture, this is crucial. You have been set free to serve and worship the God of the universe who loves you and has saved you. To trust that what he says in the scriptures is not just true. It is. But it is for your good and for your flourishing. And it is so that we might experience, in the words of Jesus, life and life abundantly. That we are all seeking to a certain degree. What does it mean to have the good life? What does it look like to truly be free? Where is freedom really found? See, our culture, I think, misdefines freedom to just be free from any restraints at all. Just let me be me. Let you do you as long as I'm not harming anybody. Never mind that we have to figure out what harm even means. But for the sake of the argument, our culture just says, I just want to be free to do what I want. The scriptures, and really even history itself, says, no, that's a misdefinition of freedom. That freedom is not just Free to do whatever I want, but it's free towards a purpose. And freedom is found within the proper constraints. Within the good constraints of a good and benevolent, gracious God. That again, what God says in the scriptures is for not just to, for us to know as truth, but that we might experience his abundant life. I love what Andrew Wilson, a Bible scholar, says this about freedom. He says, our generation is confused as to the nature of true freedom. No matter how often we experience liberation from constraints, limitations, or oppression, we still find ourselves falling into new forms of bondage. We get free from boredom and fall into slavery to distraction. We pursue liberty from prohibitions and fall into bondage to addictions. We escape repressing and become enslaved to lust. We are released from isolation and fall captive to peer pressure and the power of the online mob. Now, I know there's probably more encouraging things I could quote from, but we'll get to that in a second. But do you hear what, what Paul and these followers of Jesus are saying? That when the scriptures talk about being set free from sin, we're being set free to something. Not just our own sort of idea of what we think is the good life. But we have been set free to live into God's kingdom in God's way. And here's where I think this really begins to land for us. Do we trust that what God says in scripture is for our good? Do we trust that the guidance, the truth, of scripture is meant for our good and for our flourishing. Not to be this repressive or oppressive sort of thing, but that so we might truly experience what it means to live free in Christ. 
that what it really means to be set free by the Spirit, to walk in newness of life, is found as we follow Jesus. Not follow ourselves or do what we want. The question that the Exodus generation faced was a very simple question. Who will you worship? Who will you serve? The Exodus generation constantly was wanting to, I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to Pharaoh in Egypt where we, they would say crazy things like, we had like all this food and these like hot cakes and meat and like, and you're just like, where was that ever in the book of Exodus? They're just so warped and confused. And so they haven't actually been set free because there's this, this false nostalgia of wanting to go back. And sometimes I think that happens for us as us in a similar way. Not really trusting that the direction forward in Jesus is actually going to be for our good. Is actually going to be what really sets us free. Now in light of all of this, in light of sort of all of this talk of both the individual, communal, sort of the addictive kind of transformative power of sin that has on our lives and what Paul is saying as our response to present ourselves to God, how can we really land this for us in our day today? Here in 2021, I know it's a holiday weekend, we're talking about sin, I know, I know. But how can this really land for us today? Well, here's, let me pose it to you like this. Is there sort of a practical step, a practice from the way of Jesus to sort of index our minds and our lives and our hearts to present ourselves to King Jesus and not present ourselves to sin? It's sort of a leading question, and obviously the answer is yes. And that practice, I would say, and just to throw another fun word out today, is repent. We're just getting all the, the fun words this morning. Now, the word repent and this practice of repentance, that's sort of another, to be honest, that's another loaded phrase, right? Again, depending on your background, your church experience, Sometimes people might have this image of repent, of like this angry person on the, street, on the street corner yelling, repent. And it's full of shame and guilt and there's no grace and there's no love and there's no relational connection. And I would just say that's not what the scriptures talk about when we are talking about the word repent. This past week on Instagram, I kind of did like a short little poll of when you hear the word repent, what comes to mind? Because I find it interesting when I talk with people. When this word repent comes up, all sorts of different things come up. Things like people were saying feelings of shame and lack of trust and lack of relationship. Things like about guilt and just sort of this relationless sort of God who just wants our moral, you know, behavior to line up. And I would just say that when the scriptures talk about repent, just kind of on a very basic level here, the word repent is a very simple word that just simply means to either to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Metanoia in Greek is the word that kind of references the, the mental aspect of repent, changing one's mind. And in Hebrew, the word shuv is this concept of you're going one direction and you're just simply turning around. Kind of the basic idea, either to change your mind or to turn around, to, to, to change your direction. That's sort of kind of the, the basic, you know, what the, word, what the word repent means on a word sort of level. But the question becomes, and I think this is really helpful, at least for me, is that when I think of the word repent, when you think of the word repent, what comes to mind? You don't have to say it out loud. 
But just kind of do that mental exercise right now. When, he, when you hear me stand up here and say the word repent, what comes to mind? Is it feelings of guilt and shame and condemnation? Is it feelings of or ideas of forgiveness or grace? Like maybe it's a mix of both. When I, I look at scripture, there's a really important story in the book of Acts where Peter talks about this concept of repenting. And to me, when Peter thinks of the word repent, he doesn't think of shame and condemnation. Peter, he's preaching just right after Pentecost, and he's talking about the good news of Jesus in Acts chapter 3. And the, the audience is wondering, what is our response to be? And Peter calls the crowd to repent. Acts chapter 3, verse 21. Peter says, and I quote, Repent that you might experience times of refreshing from the presence of God. Here's the, here's the key point. When Peter thinks of the word repent, he doesn't think of feelings of shame and condemnation. He thinks of experiencing times of refreshing from God's presence. That's what Peter thinks about when he thinks of this concept of repent. And so by extension to us today, I would invite us to consider that when the scriptures call us to just turn from our ways and to turn and trust God, that the invitation is exactly this. That we might experience times of refreshing in the presence of God. How many of us would say yes to that? That this is what we long for. This is what we want. That we might experience the good presence of God in our lives. We might, like what Paul says, recognize that it is the kindness, Romans 2, of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that allows us, that, that draws us back to himself. And so for you this morning, as you're thinking about all the things that we've talked about, whether it's, again, maybe the individual side of sin or the communal side of sin or the enslavement factor of sin, where might the Spirit be leading you to turn from that and to experience times of refreshing in God's presence? Where is the Spirit saying, no, no, I don't want you to keep going down that path. I want you to turn so that you might know my presence, know the refreshness of my presence in a deep way. And that this is an invitation to a deeper intimacy and connection with God, that we might be transformed from the inside out. That we would not be guilted into transformation, that, but we would be drawn into transformation by the love of God. And that we would be set free, not just on a cognitive level, like a truth statement that we can put on a slide, but at an experiential level in each of our lives. That this is what the Spirit longs for. That this is what the Spirit of God is wanting to do in all of our lives today. And we recognize, and I want to invite the worship team to come up here. That as we're talking about such a really heavy topic, I get it. It is heavy, and it's often hard to just sort of like wrestle with this. I get that. I feel that. This is not my first choice of, of topic, even though I did actually choose it for this Sunday. But I, I get the, the, the feeling, right? That this is not like, oh, let's talk about sin at church, right? But we have to understand that the scriptures are brutally honest about the human condition. The scriptures are brutally honest about what's broken in our world. And that the scriptures invite us to see the solution and the grace found in the person of Jesus. 
And that we recognize, just as Paul is going to do, if we had more time, I'd keep going through the book of Romans here, but we'll do the short version. That as Paul keeps going into Romans 7, he recognizes himself. The good things I want to do, I cannot do. He has like this internal struggle. I want to do the good thing, but, but I can't because there's this, this thing of, of my flesh that's warring within me. And the good thing I want to do, I do not have the power to do. And Paul says at the end of Romans 7, who will free me from this body of death? But then he goes into Romans 8, but thanks be to God. Because there, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And God has done what the law could not do by condemning sin in the flesh, by sending his own son, so that those who would say yes to Jesus would be given his spirit and given the chance to live by the spirit into newness of life. And that this is the good news, folks. That we are all invited to this. To turn and to trust. To trust that what God says is not just true but for our good. And that when God, when we turn to God, God gives us his spirit. Empowers us to do what we cannot do on our own. And that God's heart is that for each and every one of you that you would not just know the freedom of God, but you would experience the freedom of God by the power and the working of the Spirit in each of your lives. Let's stand and pray together. God, we do ask that that would be a reality in each of our lives this morning. That God, you would help us to turn from whatever might be ensnaring or enslaving us. That you'd help us to turn from whatever things might be harming not only ourselves, but the people that we love in our lives. And that we would know that this is because you love us and that you are for us. I pray against any sort of feelings or lies that want to bring condemnation. That God, your spirit would Remind us of the refreshness that we can know and experience in your presence. And that we would know that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. So yes, help us to take sin seriously. Help us to, in the language of scripture, flee from sin. But God, help us to rest in your loving presence. Spirit, do that work amongst us, we ask and pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Let's worship again from a point of surrender. Let's surrender ourselves to him. He's the king.